We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings independent and interesting STEM content, science, technology, engineering and maths, from Tasmania. The show is supported by EDGE Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. Head to edge.org.au for more info. My name is Kate Johnson and I'm joined by our expert guest, Penny Jones, I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palawa and Pakana people. As we record on Lutruwita, I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which you are listening, and on behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to Elders past and present. So today we're joined by Dr Penny Jones, a researcher at at the University of Tasmania and at Menzies Medical Institute and one of the participants and organisers for our Diversity in STEM gallery that we put together as part of our celebrations for Science Week in 2021. So Dr Penny Jones is a paleoecologist, an archaeologist, an aerobiologist and public health researcher working at UTAS and Menzies. So Penny, your work has spanned many disciplines. But could we go back to where your interest in science started? What first sparked that interest in science for you? Oh, well, that's interesting. I would have to say it's probably because my parents were both scientists. So my mum actually used to work also at UTAS. Very embarrassingly, I've ended up in the same department that my mum worked in for like 30 (laughs) years. Um, So she was a zoologist. And so I have memories very young of growing up and, you know, going on the second year zoology expeditions to Fortescue Bay and looking in rock pools and like doing the bird trapping and looking at bats and all sorts of things like that. So um, I would say that's, that's probably where my interest in science began. Passed down. That's right. Passed down from your parents. (laughs) So, Penny, you also describe fire as being the common theme mm. in your diverse research interests. Has fire just happened to become a common theme or is it something that's always been interesting to you? I think my driving interest has always been the intersection of humans and the environment in mm-hmm. the kind of broader sense. And so I think fire for me has always been a really fascinating example of where that plays out um, mm-hmm. in that um, I think when I was doing my undergraduate degree, I was doing lots of geography and ecology and also some science, um, art subjects as well. Um, and it was kind of looking for, for where to fit. And what really um, kind of set me on fire was this fantastic lecturer, um, guy called Ian Thomas, who lectures in um, paleoecology, which is the study of past environments at, uh, at Melbourne Uni. And, of course, fire and the history of fire on the Australian continent is is a really fascinating intersection of um, human history, of course, the Indigenous people have used fire really skillfully in Australia for millennia. Mm-hmm. And um, I got really fascinated by the way in which, so how did that, um, how was fire used? How did that affect the environment, reciprocal relationships between people and fire and the environment in Australia over the long term? And that um, really fascinated me and led me into my honours research, which was um, looking at pollen and charcoal in peat bog sediments. Um, to look at coupled climate via vegetation histories in the Tasmanian Midlands over the last, I ended up getting 16,000 years of history. 
Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. Mm. And it's really interesting that you say that it was a fantastic lecturer. Mm. You said really got you got you into flyer stuff because yeah. you lecture now, don't you? you I do, I do, <laughs> I do. Can you tell us a bit about the unit that you run? That's right. So now I, I'm lecturing in fire um, or sort of lecturing in fire. So the unit that I run at the moment, so I spent most of last year in COVID um, busily writing a new unit for UTAS called Living with Fire. And... It is a fully online unit, so that means there's no live lectures, but um, with lots of pre-recorded material, and um, I wrote most of the content for that unit, um, which was, you know, I think both the thing I'm, I'm most proud of and also the most overwhelming thing in some ways <laughs> I've ever done. Like, right, how do we fit everything about living with fire on this flammable <laughs> content into one unit? Mm-hmm. Um, so we cover literally cover everything from fire in the Earth system, you know, the history of fire on Earth, which is actually shorter than you might think. Um, how it interacts with the geosphere, with the water cycle, with biodiversity, right through to what should I do in my own backyard to make me more bushfire um, resilient, to um, what are the social factors involved in resilience to to bushfires and bushfire recovery, how do we do those really social things well, to how we use the arts, the visual arts, music, dance, how do we use those sorts of things to help us emotionally connect and respond to fire. So kind of trying to fit all of that into one unit was a lot of fun, but also um, quite challenging. Yeah, wow. Going from the what fire actually is in a mm. in a really yep. sort of base scientific totally. sense to how we interact with it. That's Absolutely. So it um, really aims to be um, – so David Bowman, who I work with, has a, this term pyrogeography, which is really kind of meant to encapsulate the fact that you can't understand fire from only one perspective. You can't simply look at the physics of fire. You can't simply look at the ecology of fire. You can't, sim- you can't simply look at the – economics of fire it really is this particularly if we're looking at this question which this unit is grappling with how do we live well with fire in Australia in a changing climate you have to bring it all together absolutely well that's that's great and um, stay with us for part two as we hear about Penny's current research including a recent study which shows that a mobile app may help people to make decisions about protecting their health during bushfires You're listening to That's What I Call Science and today we're talking to Dr Penny Jones from the Menzies Institute for Medical Research and the School of Natural Sciences at UTAS about her research which connects fire, pollen and climate with human health. So Penny, you're involved in the development of a mobile app that people can get, can get on their phones. It's called Aerator. And we've talked a little bit about this app in a past episode on the show, but could you just give us a little recap and tell us a little bit just um, about how the app works? Yep. So Aerator is proudly born and bred in Tasmania. It was developed as part of a collaboration between um, the Menzies Institute and School of Natural Sciences at UTAS back in 2015. And it was an app designed to support people to better manage their health in the context of environmental health hazards such as bushfire smoke, but also pollen, which is also where some of my, my other research comes in, um, bushfire smoke, pollen and heat. So the app um, draws in data from the Environment Protection Authority's air quality monitors as well as Bureau of Meteorology and we do our own pollen monitoring. So it brings in um, reliable, close to real-time information on these things and then it's, it's available to people in an easily accessible form so you can get your get your smartphone app out and 
press on the map and that will tell you, well, what are the current conditions um, at the moment? And you can also, one, you can use that information to know, okay, well, do I need to, um, you know, if you've got asthma, for example, might I need to take my preventative medication today? You can use that to make decisions to protect your health. And you, the other thing you can do is you can log your symptoms. And if you do that enough over the time, the app has an algorithm in it that will let you understand well, which environmental conditions trigger my symptoms. That's really cool. Mm. Um, and it is interesting that you you mentioned people with asthma that mm. it might be really beneficial to them. Yep. So, so when I do think of that app, I think that it would be really good for people who have respiratory illnesses. Mm. But is it also important for people who don't? It is. It is. I mean, it's it's probably most useful. Our, our main target group is people with asthma um, and other conditions that are um, set off by bushfire smoke and pollen. Although, um, I suppose one thing to actually emphasise in that context is that when we think about bushfire smoke and health, we do normally think about asthma and the lungs, and that's absolutely incredibly important. And we know that a lot of for a lot of people with asthma, um, bushfire smoke is a really important trigger that they need to take care of. But actually, bushfire smoke um, affects um, all sorts of other um, chronic conditions as well. It, it can exacerbate heart conditions um, mm. just because of the inflammatory effect that the particles in smoke can have on the body. So actually people with heart disease are also at increased risk during bushfire smoke events and it can also – people with diabetes are actually also at high risk as well. Oh, wow. So more people than you would think um, yeah, are at, at higher risk from, from bushfire smoke or other types of air pollution. And I suppose um, prolonged exposure to the the – um, particulate matter mm. that's in bushfire smoke that that could also have damaging effects could it not could you yeah yeah so more most of what's known is about the effects of short-term exposure so for example um you know there's lots and lots of studies looking at okay well we have a bushfire smoker event and then what are the short-term impacts on things like hospital admissions or people going to see their gp things like that there is now um there is now starting to be some effects and more research into those longer term effects so chronic long-term exposure um, and the the effects that that has on the body, and and yes, indeed, there are some um, some effects, including increasing the population rate of um, some of those chronic illnesses that we yep. also see kind of short term relationships with. Yep, totally. And you've recently published a study which looked at how people use this app to make decisions mm. about their health, and you specifically looked at it um, within that period of those really bad bushfires during 2019 and yep. 2020. Could That's you right. tell us a bit about that study? Absolutely. So we have done some previous evaluations of how people have used Aerator to protect their health, but um, normally more in that just kind of day-to-day, how do you use it um, to protect your health, maybe from that kind of normal, more routine everyday exposure, whereas the, um, the Black Summer 2019-20 fires that exposed millions of people on the Australian mainland, um, you know, Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra, Brisbane at times even, um, you know, I think 80%, one study found 80%, I think, of Australia's population was exposed to bushfire smoke at fairly wow. high concentrations during the, that bushfire season. So obviously really extreme event and... Um, Unsurprisingly, you know, we, we had a big spike in people downloading and using Aerator as well. And so we thought, look, this is a real opportunity to to look at, well, how did people use the app? Um, well, we hope use the app to protect their health during a, a more extreme event. So we sent out um, a survey to all of our users and we got quite a good response rate. I think we got about 3,000 responses back, which is pretty good. Wow. Um, and so we asked people um, for some basic information, for example, about you know whether they suffer asthma or other respiratory conditions, but also um, how they use the app 
um, whether they what decisions it helped them to make and also just some other things about how they understood air quality information and what made them use aerator versus other sources because that's also useful. We also tried to gather a range of information that would help us improve the app, which we're acting on now in a big redevelopment of the app. And what did you find about how people use the app that helped you mm. helps you with that development? Yeah, so we, we did find that a lot of people um, – People were certainly actively using it to make decisions, which is is what we'd hoped. And and um, for example, um, I mean, really simple things like, okay, well, I'm going to close my windows. I'm going to go to an air conditioned building, things like that. Um, but also, for a lot of people, um, being able to look at other locations and what the air quality was like in other locations was actually really important, either because they had a, you know elderly relatives or someone like that elsewhere or actually like a lot of people were using it to try and work out look this is just unbearable where I am at the moment where can I go Mm. um so yeah a lot of people obviously really actively wanting okay well yeah how can I go somewhere that will be be less risky for my health and what what are those air quality sort of um factors that the app tells people during a bushfire what can people Mm. actually see on their screen so you can see the main thing that's displayed in the app from an air pollution perspective is, is so it's called PM2.5, so it's particulate matter that's less than 2.5 microns in um, diameter, and that's the main air pollutant of concern in bushfire smoke. Um, it's the really fine particles, and they're the ones that are most risky for our health because they can get into the um, deep into the lungs and even cross into the bloodstream. So they're the ones we need to worry about, and so... If you're looking for, you know, obviously bushfire smoke has lots of things in it, but bush PM2.5 is like the the indicator. Mm-hmm. So you can see the levels of that from all of the EPA um, environment protection sort of authority monitors around Australia. And then there is an air quality model available um, that can give some indication of air quality beyond those monitors. Because unfortunately in Australia we've still got a lot of gaps in our air quality monitoring network and that's some of the work we're doing at the moment in collaboration with CSIRO and some other organisations, we're working to, okay, well, where are the where are the most important gaps in the monitoring network and how can we try and fill those? That oh, sounds really important, especially in, as you were saying before, a world where bushfire is becoming more frequent. Mm, absolutely. Unfortunately, it is something we're going to have to get better at managing. Totally. Mm. Like with our, our drying and warming mm. climate, mm. the frequency that we've already seen yeah. it increase. Yeah. So what, what role do you think an app like this or the research you're doing will have in a world where bushfire is becoming more frequent and severe? We hope, certainly hope, and I think the, the information we've got from the evaluation I've just talked about and also um, we also did a, a, a smaller scale but more in-depth qualitative um, evaluation where we, we interviewed um people and talk to them about the app is that we hope that it'll provide um it will help um boost the resilience of, of particularly of of vulnerable more vulnerable groups because at the moment you know the the public health advice um does get, go out through the official channels and that's really important and we're certainly not trying to replace that but the problem with that is that um since we know with pm 2.5 the main pollution pollutant in bushfire smoke for people with things like asthma, you can start to have symptoms at levels much below the official guidelines, which are set at a population level, which, you know, they have to be. Um, and that's totally fair enough. But we know that for sensitive people, it's actually really important to know before it gets to that point. And so if we can have, you have tools like Aerator that help you 
um, really monitor what things are going on. And one of the really exciting things we're doing at the moment is, again, working with CSIRO to try and um, get forecasts into the app as well so people could can see, okay, well, what might it, what's it likely to happen tomorrow, for example. Um, so to really give people the tools to um, be able to make, make better decisions about their health. Yeah, that sounds really important. And, and when you put it together with your, your communication about fire during mm. that unit, do you think that as a society we really do need to improve our understanding of, of fire? Do you think that it's not well enough understood in the general? Yeah, look, I, I do, I do. And look, I've probably got a vested interest in saying that. <laughs> but, but I do, um, particularly because, um, you know, fire in Australia is like it is inevitable, like even without climate change. We, I think it's important because it, it is quite complicated because I think this question of how do we live with fire and how do, what, what decisions do we make about fire in Australia are actually quite complicated because fire's not always fire's not always bad and like we need fire, our environments need fire, they're going to burn anyway. And whatever choices we make about fire, whether that's trying to be, totally exclude fire um, or we're going to do planned burning or, you know, there are other ways of trying to, to protect our settlements such as making um, green fire breaks, so planting big belts of fire retardant vegetation around cities. All of these choices have social and economic and environmental consequences and trade-offs and sometimes those trade-offs are are complicated and messy and they involve us making value judgments so I think I think we need to have some really honest conversations about um about bushfire so both well what what are the risks how do we understand those risks what risks are we prepared to accept if we want to go and live in particular areas if we're not prepared to accept those risks well what do we do instead do we not live there or are we prepared to make these quite quite different choices about what our landscapes might look like and the environmental and and financial costs that come alongside with that because fighting fire and doing all of this doing things like prescribed burning it it's it's expensive so we need to have those those conversations about um the quite complicated set of consequences of of how we manage fire absolutely i guess that's where your your research looking at the intersection between humans and their environment Mm. is really important yeah That's great. So stick with us for part three as we talk more to Penny about her role in our Diversity in STEM gallery for National Science Week. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. My name is Kate Johnson and I'm joined by our expert guest, Dr Penny Jones. So Penny... You played a big role in helping us to organise our diversity in STEM gallery as part of Science Week this year. This was to celebrate diversity in STEM fields. Can you tell us a bit about why you wanted to be involved with this? Absolutely. Um, I suppose amongst the other various hats I wear, I'm really, really passionate about science communication and in many ways, yeah, I think what, what gives me real energy is is doing projects like the Diversity in STEM Gallery where you get to really celebrate and share the amazing science that's going on in Tasmania. I think that in some ways, yeah, like what, what's the point of doing science if we just sit in our offices and, and publish kind of, to be honest, really quite boring journal articles <laughs> and talk to each other. It's all about, you know, getting out there and saying, hey, look look at this, isn't this amazing? And yeah. Um, getting it out into the world and inspiring other people and that's that's one of the great joys I think of being in science. Absolutely 
Um, and what was it like organising the gallery? Um, again, I think that the main word that would, would come up would be inspiring because we <laughs> um, a big part of what, what, what I did was helping to um, – we, we got um, – all of the people who were going to be involved in the gallery, they came in and they were photographed and um, then we also interviewed them and asked them some questions about um, both the challenges they'd faced um, but also what they love about STEM and a bit about their background and it was just – it was so inspiring. Like, again, like I think every every time I did it, I just came away oh, my goodness, like there are these <laughs> beautiful, passionate, intelligent people um, and everyone was just, just doing science because – you know, for the greater good, basically. And that was, mm. you know, I think it kind of gives you hope for the world when you have those sorts of um, experiences. Yeah, there's a lot of good people and good energy out there and we shouldn't forget that. Absolutely. So such an important role to be mm. um, a platform for mm. those voices to mm. be heard too. Mm. Can you tell us about what your experience has been like as a woman in STEM? Mm. Absolutely. And actually, I don't think I answered that question for the um, ah. gallery. So look, this will be this will be a sneak <laughs> New peek. Content. <laughs> I mean, I think overall, I've probably been quite fortunate. As I said, I, I think like my my mum was a, a zoologist and quite a senior academic. So I suppose I had that really strong role model there for me in terms of um, it being possible to be a woman in the STEM. Um, but so I've I've genuinely found it quite quite positive I think it's interesting I've kind of now got to that stage in my career where you know I've done my PhD I've done a few years of postdoc and I'm now moving into sort of more leadership roles and grappling with well how do I move from being at that stage of my career where you know you sort of ghost write grants for other people and you 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 know you're you're under the wing of someone much more senior where you need to make your own name and you need to form your own identity form your own research group, potentially grapple with that, that sort of next level of um, of opportunity and leadership. And I think um, that's where I think I'm kind of noticing, you know, that there are um, having to to work out, well, what, what sort of a leader do I want to be and how yeah. do I make my own my way in, you know, science can be in terms of things like grants, for example, like it, that there are aspects of science and academia that are very competitive and um, it can be quite a, um, yeah, at working out, I suppose, how do I want to engage with that environment and um, and manage things like work-life balance as well. Um, like I don't have a family at the moment, but I might do. And again, like can I, um, I suppose, yeah, I have had times where I've questioned, well, can I do can I do science well? Can I do science in a different way that does? I, I've certainly been told very bluntly, look, if you want a life, then don't be in science and mm. you just have to be prepared to just have work be your life for at least a few years and, you know, not take any leave and et cetera, et cetera. And, like, I don't, I don't want my life to look like that. And that's not just because I'm a, a woman. This is going no. on a slight tangent. It's not just because I'm a woman, <laughs> but... I suppose that there's some of the challenges that I feel like I'm grappling with at this point. So, like, okay, well, how can I? I'm really passionate about science and I love what I do. Can I keep going and go to the next levels in an academic profession while maintaining um, a life that supports me to flourish in a whole lot of ways? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And I, you often hear this is a, a common thing. I mm. think that I I hear when talking to other 
other scientists, mm. this idea that it's a choice between having a life mm. and having a scientific career. And that's a model of science which mm. has been around for a really long time. And the way that you talk about discovering who you want to be in science, the way you want to lead, mm. the way you want to do your science is almost, do I challenge that model? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Which is a difficult, it's a difficult thing to do. It is, isn't it? And, and you know, are the structures, if I try and challenge it, will the structures make space for that? And mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I feel like I've had a lot of conversations with other people who are also kind of questioning yeah. that is actually, is that really, you know, is that really the only way to be successful in science anymore? And I hope that actually um, that's changing. But, yeah. And do you think seeing role models who you can identify with is important for making those decisions? I think so. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. As well as having supervisors mm. supervisors and or mentors and or peers who model that. Again, I think it's very difficult to make those decisions if you've got um, – yeah, unless you – know, and again, like science, I think is one of those things as well where like no one is going to set boundaries for you. You have to keep setting them for yourself again and again and again. So I think actually it's so important to have both peers and seniors who support you to draw boundaries and actively encourage you to do that because it's so easy, it's so easy not to and then to feel like you can't. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Having supportive people around you is, mm. is really important. And even even though this discussion isn't necessarily about being a woman in STEM, mm. it is a traditionally male-dominated field. Yeah, yeah. So I wonder what advice you might have for girls or women who are considering pursuing a career in STEM but feel maybe that it's not the place for them? I would, I would say go for it, but I would also say find yourself a mentor, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, find someone who – a mentor or a role model um, who – who inspires you and who, um, yeah, and I mean, I think, again, kind of playing into that leadership sort of thing, like, you know, find someone who you feel like actually that's a model of how I feel I would like to, um, I would like to work, how I would like to lead, how I would like to do science. They're out there. Yeah, definitely. I think definitely good advice and all the more reason for people, people like you, to be <laughs> to be in science and to be speaking about being in science, yeah. being role models for for other people looking to pursue a scientific career. <laughs> Thanks for listening to that's what I call science. We love bringing you science-related content and hope you enjoyed the show. If you love the show, you can get in touch with us by searching that's what I call science or that science Taz on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. My name is Kate Johnson and I'd like to thank our expert guest, Dr Penny Jones. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.